It's a week before Christmas. And all through the house, every creature is excited, even the mouse. It's the week before Christmas, the days immediately preceding Christmas or a time of, of enlivened, we may even say adrenalized waiting. How enlivened, how adrenalized, I guess, is a factor of one's age. But there's excitement no matter what. It's a time, it's a time of, of anticipation for all. And uh, as time gets closer and closer, it is uh, more so. And about this time, it begins to ramp up and start running pretty high, doesn't it? And there's a reason for that which, Lord willing, we'll get to. But first, let's read together uh, the story of the, or the account of the um, 10th plague. You find it in the 12th chapter of Exodus, which you will find printed in your bulletin, unless you have your Bible or handheld electronic device on which you're going to pick it up. Begins at verse 29 of, in chapter 12. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Now, it's taken a chapter and a half, actually much more than that, but just to address, to to, uh, introduce the idea of this tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. It's taken all that time, and we just read the entire account. One verse that actually deals with that, and then everything else is the aftermath. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. 
So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one, shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Let's pray. This is your word, Father. It's your word to your people then and now. And as your people now, we pray, O Lord, that you would open this word to us, would open us to this word, or that you'd write it upon our hearts, minds, souls, wills. Lord, change us this morning for, for having been here, for having engaged with you in your word. O Lord, guide us, direct us, lead us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, You sum up what I just read, and it says something like, God fulfilled his promise to bring disaster on Egypt and deliverance to his people. From that, I'm going to say this, that God will yet fulfill his promise to bring both disaster and deliverance. And then I'm going to go farther, and I'm going to talk about three topics under that heading. I'm going to talk about the coming disaster, about the possible deliverance, and then about the entailed pilgrimage. First off, a warning. Disaster's coming, and that's been the theme, I know, for the last couple of weeks. Uh, It's coming as it did upon Egypt and Pharaoh, as we read about in the first verse of this passage this morning. It was, that was a type and foreshadowing, though, of what was, what is to come upon the world. And we've spoken of this, like I said, for the last couple of weeks, so I'm not going to beat it to death. But, do notice this, uh, the great reversal. Philip Ryken points out the irony involved in verses 31 and and 32. Pharaoh told Moses he'd never see his face again. And then he has to call him in in the middle of the night uh, because of the disaster that's coming upon them, has come upon them. Moses had told Pharaoh that his officials would beg him to leave. Pharaoh laughed. And now that's exactly what they're doing. Pharaoh had refused to let them worship Yahweh. And now he's ordering them to go and serve or worship Yahweh, their God. 
and, and on it goes, and on it goes. Everything's turned on its head, isn't it? And so it will be. So it will be on the day of judgment. Those who have been first will be last. Kings and rulers will throw down their crowns before King Jesus. The proud will be humbled. Those who rejected God will be rejected by him. And on and on it goes. Disaster's coming. Uh, Moses called Passover a night of watching. He wasn't saying particularly about disaster, although he was telling his people to, to keep watch. God was coming. And he came. And with him, disaster. God is coming. He will come. And with him, disaster. For all who have turned their back on him, who have refused to hear him, who've rebelled against him. Disaster. Eternal disaster. Eternally damned. Eternally separated from everything good, from everything joyful, from everything righteous, from everything beautiful, separated forever from God and his goodness and his mercy and his peace. Disaster's coming. It's on a number of the pages, if not all of them, in your Bible. But, but, that beautiful word, the great reversal, but, God is bringing deliverance as well. So here's the invitation. This is Roman number two, in case you're taking notes. The invitation is that deliverance is possible. Just as it was for Israel. Again, we've talked about that the last two weeks uh, leading up to this, so we won't beat it to death. But note how they went out. You read in verses 35, 36, they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And then you turn over a few pages to Numbers chapter 33. And there you read, The people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them. They left in triumph. They left as victors. The language is the language of a conquering army going home, carrying its plunder, its booty. What a turnaround there. Before we leave that whole idea of their leaving and carrying their booty, their bounty, their plunder. Do you know what the Israelites did with that? All the jewelry and the gold and the silver. They built the tabernacle. 
They furnished the tabernacle and made a golden calf. I say that just to ask you a question. What are you doing with what God's given you? Note this also. They, they didn't go out alone. There was a mixed multitude, Moses writes, that went out uh, with them. And the Passover instructions that I read there from verses 43 to 49, I think it is, are there because of this mixed multitude. It wasn't all Israel that went out. It was all of Israel plus uh, this multitude of people. I suspect uh, a, a number of them were, were, were slaves as well, not Jewish slaves, but other slaves, uh, who saw an opportunity. And they joined themselves to Israel and got out of Dodge. I suspect there were some among them uh, that were adventurers. Here's an adventure. And so they joined up with Israel. I suspect a number of them were, were Egyptians who had contact with these Hebrews and perhaps had seen something in them. Certainly they had seen something in their God when the plagues began. And they came to recognize the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, as a living and true God. And they wanted to follow him. And so they walked out with the, Egypt, with the uh, Israelites. Deliverance always, always draws others, doesn't it? Isn't that true? Uh, others see and they're attracted. Did you see something? In a Christian friend, a Christian parent, grandparent? Did you see something that was different and attractive and it got your attention? And lo and behold, you found yourself walking out with Israel. I see faces here. I see people here who stand up and testify. I can. I mean, this thing that I laughed at and ridiculed and belittled, uh, even though I believed it, this thing the church, though, wasn't very pretty. The story of Jesus, yeah, that was pretty. That was nice. I didn't see what it had to do with me. The church was ugly as it could be. They were always fighting those people. Then I began looking and, and being around people who were really Christians. And it just got more and more attractive. And I've told the story before about a guy I worked with who drove me crazy, and Linda as well. And we finally figured out what made him different was that he was religious. And then we had to find out something about his religion. Well, he was a Christian. We had to find something out about this Christ. I thought I knew all that anybody needed to know about that Christ. And the next thing you know, here I am, you know, standing in a pulpit of all places. But it was attractive. It was more than attractive. It was beautiful when I really got to see it and got involved in it. But for Pharaoh, for Pharaoh, 
that possibility of deliverance was passed. Listen to his last sad, really depressing words to Moses. Bless me also. This one had stood so proud against Yahweh and against the threat of the plagues and against Moses and Aaron and against these people who were just slaves. Bless me also. But there was no blessing and there could be no blessing. There was no repentance. You say, how can I judge him? There's no repentance. How do I know there's no repentance? Well, read on. Read about the Red Sea and what Pharaoh did then and how he wanted to bring them back or wipe them out one or the other. What he wanted was to be done with the plagues. He wanted God's blessing. He, he wanted maybe those firstborn children to be resurrected. Whatever it was he wanted, it wasn't to repent and to follow the living God. And there can be no repentance where there's no faith. There's, a, there's been an ongoing hundreds of years argument about what comes first, faith or repentance or repentance and faith. I'm a faith first person. I don't see how you can repent if you don't have faith in Jesus. <laughs> you know, why would you repent? Uh, I've never understood the other part of the argument, although about, we're divided about half and half, I guess. Without faith, there's no repentance. Without faith, nor can there be any deliverance. Which is an invitation to you to turn from your sin to the Savior. To turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. To turn to the Lamb who was sacrificed in your place, whose blood is the only thing that can deliver you from your sin, that can cleanse you from its guilt, its power, its ugly stain. Which brings me to Roman number three. Fact. If you come that way, If you, if you will, go out from Egypt with God's people, understand this, that pilgrimage is involved. It's always involved. It was for the Israelites. Going out was just the beginning. They didn't go out and stop. They were 40 years on the road to where they were going. 38 of that was because of their stupidity, but deliverance always entails pilgrimage. The thief on the cross was that very day translated to glory. He went to paradise. That's not the norm. That's not the norm. Jesus calls us. And what's his call? Follow me. Follow me. Somebody said, well, 
If you're following Jesus, where are you going? And his answer was, to a cross. To a cross. But beyond, as we'll say in a minute. And so Jesus calls us to do that, and we do, by his grace, day by day, by day, by day, by day. Israel made 30 miles that first day, as the way I measured it, that's as the crow flies from where uh, Ramesses was and everything. You know, where somebody makes a sucker, the guy that drew the map, not me. I, I, just, I just measured it. It made 30 days. And they got from Ramesses to Sukkoth. You know what Sukkoth is? Sukkoth means a cattle shed, an impermanent place where you put feed and stuff. Cattle. They just move on. Maybe that's a, a portent of the first Christmas, you know, maybe in the manger. It's certainly a telling sign to us about this idea of pilgrimage as Christians. It's not all four-star hotels along the way. Okay. You've got to go through the cross. You've got to go through this life dragging Read John Pilgrim's, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. If you've not read it, on your way out, you go through that left-hand door over there into the library. There are half dozen copies of it, and check one out, and go and start reading. If you've, if you've read it before, read it again. If you've just read it, well, you can wait a little while. Charles Spurgeon said there were two books that every Christian ought to read once a year: his Bible and Pilgrim's Progress. I'll cut you slack. Every three years, maybe, you'll have a good progress. The Bible every year. It talks about, obviously, this pilgrimage that we're called uh, to go on. The point, though, beyond that is, yes, the pilgrimage can be hard. Pilgrimage always involves the cross. If it involves the cross, it involves death. It involves the death of Jesus. Yes, it involves your death. Day in and day out and day in, day out. A death to yourself. And if you're not dying to self and you think you're following Jesus, you're just wrong. A pilgrimage, though, always has a destination. You're going somewhere. There's a point to which you're headed. The dictionary says a pilgrimage is a journey to a place that's associated with someone or something well-known or respected. Bunyan's pilgrim, whose name became Christian, was headed for the celestial city. He was headed for heaven, as is every Christian pilgrim. For here there is no lasting city, the writer of Hebrews says. 
but we seek the city that is to come. The hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets. Before we reach the heavenly fields or walk the golden streets, then let our songs abound and every tear be dry. We're marching through Emmanuel's ground to fairer worlds on high. We're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion, the beautiful city of God. And don't you forget it. Don't ever lose sight of it. Don't ever let the things of this world blind you to it. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. The beautiful city of God. Well, it's the week before Christmas. It's a time of waiting, of anticipation. It's coming, and it's getting close, isn't it? Isn't it? Laura says it is. Yep, it is. The day is coming. But there's a bigger day and a far better day yet to come. In my Father's house, said Jesus, are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you. But it is so. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back for you to take you to myself. That where I am, there you might be also. We are celebrating that first Christmas. God came from heaven as a helpless little child. And it's a wonderful story, and we'll continue it next week. And it's something to be celebrated, something to be excited about and to anticipate. But Jesus is coming again. No little baby in a manger this time. The King of glory is coming. He's coming in judgment. But he's also coming for his people. The great and final deliverance. He will take us to himself and bring us to glory. that may perhaps be soon. Let us wait with enlivened and dare I say adrenalized anticipation as we pray. O come, O come Emmanuel and rescue captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear.
O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory o'er the grave. O come, thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadows put to flight. O come, thou King of David, come. And open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads to thee. And close the path to misery. Rejoice. Rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us. Take us to where you are, that we may be with you forevermore. Thank you that we can pray that. Thank you that the day is coming. Thank you, O Lord. It's the fruit of Christmas, of your incarnation, of your life, your death, your resurrection, ascension. O Lord, grant us a holy anxiety, a holy excitement as we wait the day. Amen.